Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh, Rick, a uh, major moment, not just in politics, but a major moment for the country, uh, the, the verdict in the uh, Derek Chauvin trial. In, in a, a moment that I think we're going to remember for a long time, uh, I think it's, it, it feels like a, a bookend to a very long and trying chapter that spanned through COVID and through the presidential campaign last year, but it was almost exactly a year since George Floyd died in the video that was seen around the world. And to think about it in the context of politics, the way that uh, Joe Biden crafted his campaign message around, uh, around racial justice uh, and, and, and really endorsed the case of the Floyd family along the way makes it for a fascinating uh, and, and searing moment for this country. And, and now I think a, a pretty profound one for President Biden. Uh, who ran as a, uh, as a as a voice for unity uh, and is someone who's given voice to, to so many of the concerns that uh, have been raised by these issues. It, it's a big moment for him and a big moment for, for our country, a moment to lead uh, and big questions about where it goes from here. Like, like, like a lot of Americans, I watched uh, much of the trial. Uh, I, I, I found it riveting, uh, particularly uh, when the prosecution talked about the the witnesses and put some of those witnesses on the stand uh, the, the, the 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 people that were there in person watching what was going on crying out you know plea, pleading uh, with with chauvin to stop what he was doing um, and I also listened very intently to, uh, to, to, to the defense, and particularly the defense's very long closing arguments, and uh, was found it very interesting that the defense used video of those, you know, of, of, of used video, used the body cam video to try to make the case various cases, uh, uh, you know, including you know, trying to make the case that George Floyd was unruly, um, and that's why Chauvin was doing what he was doing. But every time they used another clip of video, I was like, the, 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 it looks worse. It just, I mean, it's, there, there, was, there was no defense. And there you had guilty on all three counts. Yeah, and, and the speed with which it happened, I think, was, was surprising um, in the, in, because of so many people that were skeptical about, uh, about whether justice could be served in this case. You know, and one of them was Joe Biden, who we know, uh, based on reporting, was, was worried about what the impact of a, of a not guilty or a hung jury verdict would be. He recognized that this case became about so much more than the death of one individual and the trial of one police officer. This was a stand-in for decades of, uh, of perceived injustices, real injustices, um, black men and women who lost their lives at the hands of police officers and had, and had no justice. And I think, you know, testing even what the notion of justice is, because clearly uh, George Floyd himself did not get justice. He, he's, he died. He passed away. He lost his life in this. Uh, but for some measure of accountability to be part of this, it, it just became so much larger than this case, which was what made it the big moment for um, for this president at this particular moment, Biden spoke out as the jury was deliberate, deliberating, and then he spoke out again uh, after the verdict was announced. Here's a little bit of what he said: As we saw in this trial, from the fellow police officers who testified, 
Most men and women who wear the badge serve their communities honorably. But those few who fail to meet that standard must be held accountable, and they were today. One was. No one should be above the law. And today's verdict sends that message. But it's not enough. We can't stop here. And, and that raises the question, which I want to put in just a moment. We're going to, have, we're going to be joined by uh, Rachel Scott, uh, our colleague, ABC News congressional correspondent, about what is happening in terms of police reform and what is not happening in terms of police reform on Capitol Hill. Uh, but before we, we turn to Rachel, Rick, I just wanted to point out uh, or play a little bit. I think Trevor's got the sound there in his, uh, in his control room. Um, a voice from the past uh, reacting with great concern uh, that, that, that Biden uh, had made comments um, about the verdict, making it clear what kind of verdict he was waiting for and expecting uh, as the jury was deliberating. Uh, let's listen to this voice. I, I won't even say who it is because I think you might recognize uh, the voice, but this was, this was on Fox News yesterday. I'm glad he at least waited until the jury was sequestered. Right. But I think that the country is such a tinderbox right now, especially in Minneapolis. There's so much hurt, so much pain. And I think it's the role of the president of the United States to, to stay back, to not inflame the tensions. So that was obviously Kelly Mack and any of the former press secretary for Donald Trump. Did you hear? Did you hear that last line, Trevor? Play, play, do me a favor. The last line, just again. There's so much hurt, so much pain, and I think it's the role of the president of the United States to to stay back, to not inflame the tensions. Did she really say that? I mean, seriously. Is that a deep fake? <laughs> did she really goodness. say that? <laughs> she said it. She said it there. She said it there on Fox. And, you know, and, and it was one of those moments. I I, I was texting with with uh, people in and out of politics yesterday, and, and a lot of folks were making the same point, saying, you know, can you imagine what this moment would be like if President Trump was still in office? Um, you know, he he had a tendency to you know not just not just stoke, but often throw gasoline on the raging fires and to think about how the news would have been received, how the trial would have been conducted with, with you, can, you can imagine to be running commentary from the White House. It would have been a much different trial, a much different moment for the country if, uh, if President Trump were, were still in office. And um, I, think, I think Kaylee probably knows that uh, somewhat. Let's hope so. All right, we're joined now, as promised, by Rachel Scott. Rachel, thank you. We, were, we, we just played some sound from Joe Biden last night. Uh, talking about how uh, uh, the, the important message that the verdict sent, but it is not enough. We cannot stop here. So tell me, ground truth, you're covering the Hill. What is, what is next on police reform? You both hit the nail on the head there when you were talking about the change in tone, right, from this administration, from the previous administration. But I think the realities of the politics around police reform really haven't changed much. Uh, you know, I was talking to one Democratic source yesterday as we were seeing the verdict come in, and that person pointed out to me the difference between accountability and the difference between justice. Accountability, they said, is what we saw in that courtroom. And justice, they say, can be served through legislation so right now we are seeing movement. You have Senator Tim Scott, a Republican. You have Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat, 
who are meeting trying to see if there is common ground on police reform. We saw the House. They passed uh, the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It, it is a bill that is going to ban chokeholds, no-knock warrants, uh, create a national database for police misconduct. But in the House, you only had one Republican who supported it. And, you know, in the Senate, you need at least 10 Republicans to get behind that bill. And the biggest sticking point here is this issue of qualified immunity, which would help protect officers from lawsuits, uh, you know, you have Republicans who are drawing the hard line there against it. There is a lot of common ground here, but it is this question of whether or not two sides are going to come together. And we've been here before, after the death of George Floyd. We saw those bipartisan talks over on the Hill about wanting to move forward, take some sort of steps towards police reform in this country. And now we're almost a year after the death of George Floyd. Still nothing has been passed. So definitely some movement. The question, though, is, is it enough to actually make some substantial progress over on the Hill? We, we talked to Tim Scott last year uh, about all this and what he was trying to do. Um, and it seemed like he had put forward a, a, a serious proposal. He was having some bipartisan uh, uh, conversations about it. And he emerged from the experience, I, I, it seemed to me, we, we talked to him right after things had kind of crashed and burned, uh, uh, bitter and angry with the Democrats for being, and it, for, he, he was arguing, were being disingenuous about this wanting the issue more than wanting a, a solution. Uh, that was his take. What, what is Tim Scott doing now? Is he, is he ready to dive back into this, or is he you know, still taking that, 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 that view that, that the Democrats don't really want to work with the Republicans on this? He is. And, you know, both him and Cory Booker and Representative Karen Bass over on the House side have been having these sort of informal talks over the last couple of weeks trying to see if they can get something done. And you're, and you're absolutely right, John. You have Republicans who look at Democrats and say, listen, you know, we were behind a little bit more of a narrow focus on police reform, but Democrats uh, wouldn't come to the table on that. And now you have Democrats who say, you know, we have this sweeping police reform bill and Republicans won't come to the table on that. And so this is the issue of whether or not there need there there can be common ground that is found. So now you have Senator Cory Booker, you have Senator Tim Scott, who are meeting and trying to see if they can take a step forward. Uh, but you already have some Republicans who are making it clear that they want a more narrow focus when it comes to police reform. And a lot of them are pointing out as well that there is only so much that the federal government can do on this scale, right? A lot of this uh, substantial change would also have to come from the states, but there's this question of doing something versus doing nothing at all, right? So will Democrats give, give up on some of these things? When we talk about the qualified immunity, would they possibly let that go so that you could have something on police reform in general, maybe coming around this idea of banning chokeholds, which is after the death of George Floyd, we saw bipartisan uh, lawmakers both agreeing that, that that is something that could that could be done. And so the talks have resumed. And as you know, on the Hill, where you have both sides at times not talking at all uh, to the other side, that is a definitely a step forward. I think it remains to be seen on whether or not it's enough. And you have Congresswoman Karen Bass and Democrats who are saying, we are hoping that we can get this done by the anniversary of the death of George Floyd. That's just in a couple of weeks. So that's a pretty tight deadline. Uh, but they are working. They are talking. They say they are making progress. But only time is going to tell on this one. 
Yeah, and, and that, that's an enormously ambitious uh, time frame if there actually isn't a, a bill right now that has any bipartisan support. Rachel, this was such a, such a, a, a searing and seminal moment. You, you, you put, you've snapped a photo of, uh, of a black man who literally fell to his knees after learning of the verdict. It's one, I think one of the iconic photos of this moment. Check it out on, on, uh, on your Twitter feed. If you haven't seen it, folks, you should, you should check it out. Uh, but but, but what, what's your sense about how – how the, the this moment can uh, can be made not to fade. We're just we're such a short attention span country. Things move so quickly. Uh, we're on to the next issue so quickly. We know there's so much on the Biden agenda to get through. It was just you know the infrastructure package and immigration, uh, the gun violence has been a, a hugely pressing issues. What what can be done or what is being done by lawmakers to keep the issues raised by the death of George Floyd uh, top of mind? Yeah, and the Biden administration is really facing some serious pressure on this. You know, uh, President Joe Biden, he made this campaign promise to establish the Police Oversight Commission in his first 100 days in office. It was just a few weeks ago that I was in the White House press briefing. I was asking Press Secretary Jen Psaki, where is that commission? What happened to it? Are you guys backing away from this? She would not give me a firm answer. Turns out a few days later, they decided that they're backing away from that. Uh, they said after talking to civil rights leaders and organizations. So there is a big question here about whether or not President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are doing enough on this issue. We know that they made infrastructure their next priority instead of issues like immigration or police reform. They are definitely taking some heat on whether or not they're prioritizing the right sort of issues in terms of trying to gather support around this. You know, I think there is also this sense, and I can tell you after being out in front of the White House uh, last year, night after night, uh, after the death of George Floyd, I was out there again as this verdict was being read. There is frustration among people where they feel like we get into this routine, you know, even after, uh, you know, we see these mass shootings, after we see the death of, uh, of, of a black man at the hands of police, where we have these conversations about gun reform, where we have these conversations about police reform, and in the end, nothing actually gets done. And so you have those words, Black Lives Matter, painted on this road outside of the White House. It was meant to send this powerful signal to lawmakers, to the White House, that it needs to be more than just a symbol, that there needs to be legislation behind this. And this is exactly what activists and protesters and people who came out in front of the White House fear. They fear that nothing would get done. And so you definitely have people on both sides of the aisle who say, yes, this is a priority. Yes, we are talking about it, but they need to just be more than talk at this point. There needs to be action. And in the Senate, other than Tim Scott at this point, we haven't really heard of any other uh, you know, Republicans or even sort of Democrats that are, are coming to the table and having these bipartisan negotiations, they're going to have to bring more people into those talks in order to get something passed, in order to get this act passed if they really want it, or whether or not they're going to go back to the drawing board and try and really get a bipartisan deal done when it comes to police reform. Fantastic. Thank you for, uh, for giving us that uh, up-to-the-minute update on what's going on. Rachel Scott, great to talk to you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to the great Susan Page on uh, her brand-new, just-released biography of Nancy Pelosi. We'll be back in a moment.
Right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Joining us now is the great Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. She has covered, I believe I'm correct in this, six different presidents, 10 presidential elections. Uh, she's the author of multiple books and a current book, very interesting, uh, definitive biography of Nancy Pelosi entitled Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power, out this week. Go out and buy it. Listen to the podcast first, but then go out and buy uh, Madam Speaker. Uh, Susan Page, good friend. In full disclosure, it's an honor to have you here on the podcast. John, it's an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you. So I, I have to say, um, you know, th- there's a challenge in writing about Nancy Pelosi because she, is, she has been written about many times. Uh, but I, but I think that you have gone, you have gone further. This is, I, I believe, will be the definitive biography. Uh, for one thing, you uh, spent a lot of time interviewing friends and family, uh, but also Speaker Pelosi herself. Uh, what was it? Ten, ten interviews. Ten interviews. You know, the real, the real difficulty in doing a biography of Nancy Pelosi is she is so disciplined. Uh, you, you've interviewed her many times. She is a tough interview to get her to say anything that she didn't walk into the interview intending to say. And so one of the one the two things made this book work, I think. One is that I had 10 interviews with her, so she was more relaxed and more forthcoming in the 10th interview than she was in the first. Uh, and the other is that these interviews kept falling on big days. Uh, I happened to be there interviewing her the first day of the House impeachment hearings. I happened to have an interview with her hours after the big blow up with AOC and the squad. So that was very helpful in catching her at moments uh, when she was, I think, more candid than she often is. Yeah, you described this uh, one scene. Uh, it must have been on, on, on the day when we had, she had the, you know, the big kind of blow up with the squad, where she just unloads uh, on young members who have this idea that they're going to be somehow pure and they don't really have any. I mean, explain that scene because you, you really get a sense of some raw emotion from Nancy Pelosi and real frustration uh, with with AOC and the squad. So she had just come from really a showdown with the squad at a meeting of the entire Democratic caucus, a closed meeting. And when I came in, I asked her about it and she insisted that re- reporters were just hyping this. There was no story. Re- Democrats always fight. It was no different than ever before. And um, I, I said, you know, you, you have said, though, that there's a difference between making a beautiful pate and making sausage. And do these young, progressive, new members of Congress understand how messy the sausage-making process can be? And that set her off because, of course, that is exactly the point at hand. Uh, and she she mocked them, something she almost never does with a Democratic uh, member of the House. She described them, compared them to little children who come and make a big show of being pure and pious while the adults in the room are over in another corner actually legislating. Susan, can you talk a little bit about how she 
leads. I, to me, she's been one of the most fascinating figures to watch. She didn't get into politics uh, until she was into election politics until she was in her forties, until after her kids were grown uh, and out of the house. Um, but she's had this enormously long career, the two stints as speaker, and you know, often the, the often conservatives and the right kind of mock her as a San Francisco liberal, but. You know, this is Tommy Delessandro's kid, and you know, growing up in this, the, with knowing street politics of Baltimore, how has she brought the, those perspectives together, and what does it mean right now when she's got this historically narrow uh, margin of, of control in the House to try to advance an agenda? You know, she is a San Francisco liberal. She's also a Baltimore Paul, and our friend John Bresnahan, who used to be at Politico and now is at Punchbowl. Uh, a decade ago, did a profile of her and described her as an iron fist in a Gucci glove. And that struck me as the perfect description of Nancy Pelosi's leadership. You know, she's not so great on the public stuff. She's not great at giving a speech. Uh, she can stumble when she speaks extemporaneously. She is a master of the inside game of politics and of being a legislative leader. And sometimes she does it by things like we, we've seen this week when she stood up for Maxine Waters and prevented her from being censored for some comments she had made on the Derek Chauvin trial. That was the Gucci glove. But she also can bring down the hammer in a way that holds her caucus in line. And of course, never has she needed that skill more than today when she can only lose two Democratic votes and get something through the House on a party line. That's the narrowest margin that either party has had in modern times. And what's your sense of a relationship with, with, with Biden? Obviously, they've known each other for a long time. I think there's some you know, ideological, generational similarities there. Uh, Biden has a good appreciation of the legislative process. But are they 100% in lockstep, or do you see signs of, signs of tension ahead? So I, I interviewed Pelosi last week and asked her about Biden, and she described him as a transformational leader, uh, which is high praise uh, in her in her mind, and as someone with whom she was so familiar and someone who was so sophisticated and experienced about things in Washington, they could speak in shorthand. Now she she revered Barack Obama as president, but this is a closer and a different kind of relationship than she had even with Barack Obama. Uh, and the fact that Biden has taken this kind of bolder stance on some policy that maybe we predicted he might do, uh, I think that's something that that is very much in line with what Pelosi was hoping for. You you break uh, some some news in this that Pelosi had intended to. Uh, to retire to leave Congress uh, after the 2016 uh, election, but you know, with the with with Trump coming to the White House, she stayed to take on that fight. I I, I want to ask you about another moment um, where we all thought uh, Pelosi was going to be leaving Congress, and that was in 2010 after those devastating Democratic losses, Republican Tea Party takeover. Uh, there was a there was a real sense, uh, I think, uh, I felt it anyway, obviously I was wrong, <laughs> but that, um, that, that, that Pelosi, that was the end of, of, of Pelosi's uh, time as, as, as the Democratic leader in the House, and, and it obviously wasn't. What, bring us into that moment a bit. She thought that that might be the end of her leadership of the House. You know, not since Sam Rayburn had we had a Democratic leader go from from the minority to the majority, lose the majority and keep uh, their position of power. And aides to Pelosi told me, and in fact, she told me herself that she was 
quite distressed about what happened because, you know, once you're the leader, you take some responsibility for what happens to everybody in your caucus, including when you, when you lose power. And she went back to San Francisco and she was seriously contemplating stepping down. And some of her chief allies heard about that and began a little campaign behind the scenes to buck her up and to keep her uh, in the leadership. One of them was Richard Trumpka, the head of the AFL-CIO, who told me that he heard about this. He was distressed. He thought it would be bad for the party if she stepped down, called her, encouraged her not to step down. She told me that she spoke to almost every mem- almost every Democrat in, co- in Congress at that point, came back, stayed in the leadership. Uh, you know, there's been some sense for some time that maybe there should be a new generation of leadership in the House. But there was a decision made at that point, broadly, that she was the right person to stay in power then. You know, it's amazing. It's almost a generation uh, that we've had uh, conversations about there needed, needing to be a new generation of leadership. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're eventually going to be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, 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 eventually. Um, I, but I, 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 I want to talk to you also about uh, her the way she dealt with Trump. I mean, obviously, the, the, the iconic image we remember is her standing up uh, before Trump at that White House meeting and walking out. Um, but there was a flash. It was just a glimmer. There were, I mean, really, if you blinked, you missed it. But where it seemed like there might actually be a relationship there. <clears throat> uh, when when you know Trump was talking about Chuck and Nancy, they they, they made an agreement. I think it was on the on, on the debt ceiling. Uh, obviously, these are all these are three New York. I mean, well, I mean she, she's Baltimore, but you know Chuck Schumer, New York. You know her. Um, they, the, the, these are these are two politicians that, uh, that that Trump had had given money to over the years back when back when he gave money to uh, to Democrats. Um, and there was a sense that maybe maybe he kind of understood them and 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 can make a deal. Was was there just how fleeting was that moment, and was that moment ever real? So just to, just to note that meeting where she stood up and led the Democratic members of Congress out of the White House meeting, quite an extraordinary scene. That's the last time they ever had a conversation. That was in October 2019. That's amazing. The president isn't it? and the speaker of the house never again spoke. Uh, so that tells you how damaged their relationship. Uh, Became now, you know, it's it's interesting. I I I am reluctant to talk to Jonathan Carl about anything involving Donald Trump because you know Donald Trump better than <laughs> anybody, and have written your own excellent book about that. But I can tell you that I interviewed President Trump just before the midterm election in 2018, an interview uh, for USA Today, in which he was not. Uh, terribly concerned about the possibility that Democrats were going to take over the House because he thought he could do business with Nancy Pelosi. Now, that turned out to be to be wrong. Now, I think if I think if if uh, if Trump had wanted to do something that Pelosi wanted to do, she would have worked with him. And we all thought infrastructure might be that deal. But that never came about. And it turned out there their inter- their policies were not aligned, especially on immigration. And she had so little respect for him uh, that uh, that he had, I think, more respect for her than she had for him. That's fascinating. It's something you, you, you can imagine playing out that he wants, you know, he wants her approval and she just wants it, but at some point there's nothing to do with him. What What is what is left, Susan, on Nancy Pelosi's political bucket list? She's 81. 
uh, just turned 81 years old. She um, obviously rode back to the speakership after, after losing power, uh, rode out those Trump years, left her stamp on history. Uh, do, do, does she, is she in it for you know, the medium hall? There's been a lot of talk about, about this term being her last. Uh, does, does controlling the House matter? But what, what's your sense in talking to her and reporting, reporting about her, how much gas she has left in the tank, how much, how much more she wants to get done? I think she wants to deliver for Joe Biden on these big packages uh, that we we expect to be debated. One of them, uh, she says she wants to pass by the Fourth of July recess. Uh, but at that point, you know, you get through that, it's going to be hard to do big things again until the next election. And I think she has made it without making the kind of Sherman-esque statement that we would like to hear. I think she's made it pretty clear this is her last term. Uh, and I have some speculation not based on information. Uh, which is the most dangerous kind, uh, that perhaps she would be interested in becoming uh, ambassador to the Vatican or Italy, uh, ambassador to Italy, the land that her grandparents left uh, so many years ago. Uh, it seems to me that a President Biden might just reward her with that. Wow. In, in, the, in the footsteps of the Gingriches uh, at the Vatican, that could be... Uh... Well, Maybe Lindy Boggs, she would prefer that <laughs> the way comparison. She would look at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, absolutely fascinating uh, a book. Great conversation. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us. And and Susan, I, I, it feels like it's been ages since I've seen you in person, as we've been in this, uh, you know, COVID lockdowns, canceled all those dinners and things that uh, that, that you are so involved in. But um, but uh, great to talk to you, and I hope to see you soon. So, John, just one last thing. I'm a yes. former president of the White House Correspondents Association, so are you. And I just want to say you led the association at such a difficult, perilous time, and you did a really great job. And so on behalf of White House Correspondents everywhere, thank you. Thank you. It was a, it was a, brutal, it was a brutal period. Somehow we survived. <laughs> thank you. Susan Page, great to talk to you. And thank you to our entire powerhouse politics team, Adia Robinson, Trevor Hastings, for Rick Klein. That is all for today. We will see you next week.